You know, if you were here with us last week, you know that one of the things that we were talking about was this idea of surrender, that we've kind of lost a sense of what it really looks like to surrender our lives to Jesus. What does it look like for us to really lay it all down and say, no, it's, it's yours, you know, it's, it's not mine. And as we're singing this song tonight and I'm listening to the lyrics of this and I'm hearing this idea, this, this worship line that says, I'm gonna come to you with no agenda, that's the life of surrender, to say, Lord, I just want you and I'm not coming with any sort of agenda. I'm not asking you to fix anything. I'm not asking you to solve anything. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm just asking that, 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 that I could do something for you, that you would look at my life and you would fill me with your spirit, that you would fill me with your presence, that you would allow me to know you and to know your will in such a powerful way that I partner with you. We're just coming to him with, with that heart tonight. And so I just wanna invite you would, you, would you pray with me right now and would you just create space in your heart right now? And would you just say, Lord, I don't have an agenda for you. I'm not coming here because I need something from you. I'm coming here because I want you and you alone. I wanna follow you and pursue you and love you. If you've come with an agenda, if you've come with an idea, something that you'd like Jesus to just do for you, that you, and I'm not saying there aren't times we come to him with our prayers, but if there's that agenda that you have where, you know, Jesus, you better or else, would you just take a moment right now and lay that thing down, whatever it is? And would you just say, Lord, I want you. Lord, we want to experience your presence. That's why, we, that's why we do this. That's why we gather. That's why we turn off all the noise. That's why we get away from all the distractions. That's why we get in a room like this on a night like tonight is because we want to know your presence. We want to, we want to eliminate all the things that are keeping us from seeing you and hearing you. We want to be in a place where we can tangibly feel you moving and know that your spirit is present with us, that you're among us, that you're upon us. Lord, that's why we come to this place so that we can walk out and say, I know that God is living and active and moving because I experience him in my life. Lord, I pray right now that even as we continue in this service, even as we spend time opening your word, as we, as we listen, as we lean in for what you're trying to show us, as we, as we laugh together, as we challenge ourselves around your word together, Lord, I pray that we would continue to experience your presence, that we would know your nearness and that you would move among us through your word tonight. We love you, Lord. We love you. We love you and nothing else because nothing else will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> I was about half tempted to just say, let's worship the rest of the night together but we've got Leviticus to get into. So uh, I know what that would be like if you'd be all disappointed if we didn't do that tonight. Um, don't laugh at that. I don't know who laughed, but I know you know I was joking. You wouldn't all be very happy to not do Leviticus tonight, but we're doing it. Now, so for those of you that are maybe with us for the first time, we're walking through one of the strangest books in the Bible, a book called Leviticus. Thank you, TJ. Um, and tonight we are doing a Leviticus chapters 12 through 15 
which is good news, right? We're doing multiple chapters tonight, right? Moving a little quicker, we're putting our foot on the accelerator and plowing our way through this. But we're doing it really quickly, but also these chapters are all deeply connected to one another. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there, and if you don't have a Bible, the parts we're going to look at are going to be on the screen. We're not going to read all those chapters together tonight. It's impossible. But these chapters are all linked together. They, they deal with very similar things, and so the best way for us to talk about them or to teach them is for us to do it as a group. Now, let me also say this, that we are about to come to some of the strangest, most confusing, even at times sort of repulsing um, passages in all of the Bible, much less the, the book of Leviticus, but the whole Bible. Um, and so I just want to warn you with that, that this is going to be really unusual. And at the same time, uh, as it has been every week, there's things that we're learning about ourselves. There's things we're learning about our relationship with God. And there's most importantly, things that we're learning about who God is as we unpack the book of Leviticus. So uh, with no further ado, let's start Leviticus chapter 12. I'm going to read the first four verses. It says this, and I'm going to move pretty quick through the passages here. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed." I'm just going to go ahead and summarize for you and save you the pain and say the text continues on and now gives instructions to the woman if she has a daughter. And it's more of the same of what we just read. Then you jump to chapter 13. The subject sort of pivots just a little bit and it says this in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest and the priest shall examine Examine the diseased area on the skin of his body, and if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body, and, it, and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked, and the disease is not spread into the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin, after he's shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest. And the priest shall look. And if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. Good start to, to that chapter, right? If you continue to read these instructions, you learn what to do. And if you continue reading on, you learn about other infections. You learn about swelling. You learn about what to do with raw flesh. You learn about boils and spots. So we get the instructions on what to do when you get spots. And then verse 29 opens up a section about hair on your head and on your face and, and itching. And then eventually you come down to verse 40, which I'm surprised more men don't know this verse, but they should. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 40, it says, If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald, he is clean. It's good to know, guys. When your hair falls out, you are clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness on the forehead. He's clean. It means there's nothing wrong with you. It's just normal, guys. It's normal, Mark. It just happens, okay? It's just being a guy, right? Sorry to point you out. It just, I was getting the glare from over here. But now I'm going to pay for that one later. Now, the rest of this passage deals with skin diseases, and then verse 47 um, wraps up with this section about mildew and fabric. 
like clothing and tents and blankets. And so the Lord is saying, if there's mildew on a tent, if there's mildew on your blankets, if there's mildew in your clothing, then this is what you need to do. And he gives them all these instructions. That brings us to chapter 14, which other than a rehash of chapters 12 and 13, gives us some helpful hints for cleaning your house or for cleaning lepers that might be in your family. So then we come to chapter 15, and chapter 15 is ridiculous fun. Um, Chapter 15 is laws and rules about bodily discharges. Yes, thank you, somebody. It's in the Bible. It says this in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanliness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one of the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge is sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. We're going we're gonna to skip that section, uh, the next section, because I think you get the idea of where we're going here. Then you get to verse 19. It says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And, in, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it's the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, shall, he shall be unclean until the evening. And again, I think you get the idea of this, right? Um, if you're so inclined, I encourage you, you can continue reading in these chapters. Just don't do it before you eat. That's unless you're trying to lose weight. That's when you can read the rest of this. So let me just give you a quick summary because I just gave you some, some highlights of these chapters. Chapter 12 is about ritual purification after childbirth. Chapter 13 deals with skin disorders and diseases and infection and mildew. Chapter 14 rehashes chapters 12 through 13, gives some added instruction along with some cleaning tips. And then chapter 15 deals with bodily charges. And then all of it gets sort of this um, uh, sort of bow wrapped on it in the end of this. And in verse 31 of chapter 15, it says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So, yeah, thanks for that amen. So let me give you some clarification here because this could be really confusing. And I want to make sure that something very simple is very clear in this moment. I want you to notice Sin is never mentioned anywhere in these verses. Sin is never mentioned here. Wrongdoing is never mentioned in any of these verses. That's a really important clarification to make because there are times when people read things like this in the book of Leviticus, and maybe you've done this in the past, and you've sort of, sort of thought to yourself, how could all of this be God's law, and how could all of this stuff be sin? And so you end up discarding what's in this passage because you think, is all of this sin? Sometimes people use this to reinforce ideas about God that are simply not true. These things that are being described in these chapters of Leviticus are not sin. They're actually very natural things that happen. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about this week, uh, this whole passage all week, and um, you know, the other day I, I told Alex Lesler that I, I was sorry I stuck him with the Leviticus passage I stuck him with because it wasn't an easy one. And then I came to this week and I was like, 
No, it was really easy compared to this passage of scripture and what I'm teaching tonight. But I was thinking about this all week and thinking about how we talk about this and what it reveals to us about God. And, and I was thinking about this habit that now that my children are all adults, my youngest child is 18, now that my children are adults, I'm now finding myself amused by the things that other people's children do that would have driven me nuts if I was their parents. I don't know if anyone else has ever walked through this, right? This is a kind of an, an annoying thing probably to those parents, but now I think it's hilarious when kids do the things that make their parents blush, right? When kids climb the things they're not supposed to climb or they dive under the things they're not supposed to dive under or when they throw rocks into the mud or they jump in the puddles that they are just gravitationally pulled to. There are just things you watch and now as a dad of adult children, I just see kids and I just chuckle. I'm like, that is such a kid thing to do. Like there are things that kids can't not not do. Are you with me on this? And then you see these young parents trying to stop them, and you literally are wrestling the laws of physics, trying to stop a child from doing childlike things, right? There's these moments where I'm laughing now, and I see the parents just freaking out, and I just want to say to them, just calm down. Just let them be kids. Like, just take a deep breath. It's not that big of a deal. Now, these things that kids do, there is nothing wrong with them. When my children would jump in the puddles, there was this deep sense that they were violating my laws in my household. But now I look back and I think, they jumped in the puddle because kids jump in puddles. Those are natural things for people to do. These are things that are part of being human. So verse 31 is not saying that all of this stuff is sin or that we should feel bad about these things. It's just simply God saying, these are human things and I'm telling you something through this. So, so verse 31 doesn't say it's sin, but it actually does tell us something interesting, and it really raises a question for us. Is God obsessed with cleanliness, or is this pointing to something else, maybe even something about his character? Remember, that's something we've been discovering through this whole series is that as we look at Leviticus, what we're seeing in some of the rites and the rituals and the laws are these, these directions that actually lead us to say something about who God is. Remember, God is telling these people that he's a God unlike other gods. So what is this telling us about God? What is the symbolic message? There's obviously a message on the surface, but is there also a symbolic message about God in this? What is he trying to show us about ourselves or about him in this? So on the surface, really easy question to answer because he's showing us some stuff about hygiene, right? In fact, if you read this, these things in Leviticus, you realize this is just some actually very just good information that he's giving people. Uh, he's actually revealing that the priests functioned in almost a physician role in the, the nation of Israel. And so he's kind of unpacking some of this for us. But to really answer the question, to really understand what God is saying, I actually want us to back up a little bit and I want us to get a little higher in altitude and look at the Bible for just a moment. Um, I want to go backwards in time and in history and I want to go up in terms of altitude. You know, like when you're in a plane, and you look out the window and you see how everything runs together. You see how little tributaries turn into large rivers. That's what happens with the Bible. When we take a step back from the Bible, we get better altitude. We move back in history. We start to see how all of these things begin to connect. And so we're going to discover something about God. And I want us to go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 says this. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth 
when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now, the name Adam or Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adama, which literally is translated or could be translated into English. Rather than calling him Adam, the more accurate translation of Adama is, is essentially dirt man or, or ground guy. Maybe that's a more modern way to say it. That's what the word Adam, the name Adam literally means that you're dirt man. Dirt man is his name. His name would constantly be a reminder of where he came from. I was dirt and God breathed life into me. The passage says that he was formed. And, and that idea of formed in the Hebrew language gives this, this sense that there was a great detail being given to his formation. And then it says that God breathed into him, into his nostrils, and, and it, and it, the man came to life, this Adama, this dirt man. So, so before that, it was just dirt, and, and then God breathes into it, and now this becomes life, which also shows us a simple mystery that we see over and over again, that God breathes life into the lifeless, and he gives value to the valueless. Are you with me on this? God breathes life into the lifeless. That's what we're seeing in Genesis. And he gives value to something that had no value. It was just dirt. And now suddenly there is this value. There is life in this. When God breathes into something, there is value in whatever that thing is. And so what do we see in Genesis? Well, we see that God breathes life. God breathes life. God gives value. God is the God of life. The very outset of the Bible, we're seeing this is a God who gives life. All about life, right? But then we keep reading and we see something else. So verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So God gives life. But what we also see is that God gives choices. God gives freedom. He gives options. He says, basically, you can choose me or you can reject me. That's your choice. God gives that to Adama. He gives that to the dirt man. The dirt man can only love God if he has free will. This is really important for us to all rationalize right now. If you force somebody to love you, then how can they really love you? In order for someone to, to really show you love, they have to be free to choose that love for you. That's the only way love could ever be authentic, is if somebody has chosen that out of their free will to extend that. They have to have the option to reject. They must have the option. So God gives the choice, the ability to choose. But he also frames this. If you decide to reject me, if you decide to reject God, then you also reject the source of life. And if you reject the source of life, then you are experiencing and you are embracing a death. 
then a life of death is what awaits you. So if you choose God, you choose life. If you reject God, you choose death. You choose life or you choose death. So what happens if you reject the breath of life? What happens if you decide to walk away from the breath of life? Verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field of the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? Notice how Satan always twists things. What did God actually say? What did he really say? He doesn't, he doesn't just tell a bald-faced lie. He just twists some things. He says, you, God, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Then we get to verse 6, and it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Then in that moment is when they decided to choose their own way. They chose their own way, and they chose to reject God. And what was the result? Verse 14, if you move down a little further in the chapter, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 16, he said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In verse 17, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded, you shall not eat, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is just a sample of what God begins to lay out for them, and what's the point? There's an outcome. When you choose death, when you choose to move away from the one who breathes life, there are consequences for those decisions. You choose this, and out of your own choice, you get cut off from life. So you wanted it, and now you have the consequences. You have pain, and you have jobs you have to work, and you have sweat, and tears, and blood, and death. Why? Because you cut yourself off from the source of life. When you don't choose life, you choose death. There is no middle ground. And so the result of this permeates everything. So all of your relationships, now there is a disintegrating dynamic to relationships. There's a disintegrating dynamic to work, to money, to structures, to organizations. Now all of this trickles down and we are living in this, in this space that is influenced by and impacted by the trajectory of death. You name it, everything is being influenced by it. So right here in the very beginning of the Bible, as we get a little higher altitude and we go back into time, we see that there's this theme being presented that gets presented over and over again, that we have a choice. We have a choice between life and we have a choice between death. Later, there's a moment in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where Moses literally says to the people, listen, we have a choice. Do you want to choose life or do you want to choose death? Go to the New Testament. We see it over and over again. Romans chapter 7, um, the Apostle Paul is speaking to people on the subject of choosing life and choosing death. And, and there's this realization, there's blessing and cursing decisions that are catching up with us. Listen to this, and I, and I love these verses, and I, I've come to these often in the book of Leviticus. But he says in verse 15 of Romans 7, 
For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then in verse 21, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from, listen to this phrase, this body of death. Who will deliver me from this pathway that just seems to be characterized by death at every turn? Like everywhere I go, everything I do, there is this disintegrating effect. So who will deliver me? Everything I try, everything I want, everything I really desire, it ends up being tainted by these things. So who will deliver me? And then we're introduced to Jesus, which, by the way, in the same way that we see that this is life and death and blessing versus cursing, with the same way that we see this theme repeated, we also see the foreshadowing of Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture. There is life and death, who will deliver us, and then there's this presentation of a, of a Savior, of one who rescues. So Jesus comes, and notice the theme here, verse 1 of Luke chapter 8. It says that soon afterward, Jesus went, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the kingdom is what he's doing. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, if we go all the way back to Genesis, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of life, not death. So when Jesus begins preaching the kingdom, Jesus is saying, no, no, there's another option. There's another choice. You can choose Life, and he's preaching the kingdom. God is about life. God is about shalom. God is about the restoration of all things. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There's death. And then he says, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Do you see that there are these choices that were being made, that we can choose life or we can choose death, and God is associated with life and the enemy is associated with death. The thief versus Jesus. One takes life and one gives life and life to the full, over and above, abundantly, exceedingly. Like you will need a, a shipping container to put all of the, the life that God will give you in some place for safekeeping. You are, that is what he's saying. In fact, um, how does he reverse the curse? All of this is connected, these themes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. What is the point of that, that verse? Jesus overcame death. That's the point. That's what Paul is saying, which means that death isn't what death used to be. We are not slaves to death anymore. That's what he's saying. I've overcome death. That other option, that choice, that thing is no longer the only option for you. So, so let's talk about what we've learned and seen so far by looking back and, and then looking at, at a higher altitude. God is life. God is the originator, the creator of this mystery called living, and then God gives us options, but those options lead to the choice of death. 
And so who's going to save us? Who's going to rescue us from this? It's Jesus. That's this bigger picture that's being painted. So now what does this have to do with some strange rules in Leviticus chapter 12 through 15? I know that's what you were thinking this whole time. Like how in the world are we going to connect this to Leviticus? Let's go back and look at a couple of things that we saw in these chapters. And let me, I don't do object lessons often. And when I do, it's usually a mistake, just so you know. And I have been debating this all day and whether or not this is a wise thing to do or not. And I don't think it is. But I'm going to try it on Thursday night and then hopefully um, I'll still be here on Sunday. Um, so, so this, I'm going to, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to not make this feel like a junior high human growth and development class right now. <clears throat> and I'm also trying to be as PG as I can possibly be in this. I'm just giving you the heads up. If there's any small children, plug their ears. So um, here we go. This is such a bad idea, just so you know. <clears throat> a woman has a cycle. We're going to start there. We read about this cycle in Leviticus a little earlier. Some of you guys need to know that a woman has a cycle. And every month, there is this possibility for a woman to create life. Every month, there is this moment in which a woman has eggs. And I know this doesn't look like an egg, but we're going to pretend that it is one. It is not to scale by any means. <laughs> but this egg is just an egg until it encounters something else, right? The egg needs a seed. I'm trying to keep this as PG as possible. It needs a seed to get inside of the egg in order for there to be life generated, right? And so your human growth and development class taught you someplace that the human beings try their hardest to make life, and when this happens, there are all sorts of seeds that get thrown, right, at the egg. But if one doesn't get in, there's no life. Right? What happens if one doesn't get in? Well, then there's a cycle that starts, right? And this whole process, some of the women are looking at me like, are you really doing this right now? Yes, I really am. But your husbands still don't understand. <laughs> there's a cycle that starts, right, as a result of this. That if a seed doesn't get into the egg, this cycle begins, and then the whole thing starts over again. So then there's this question. When we look at Leviticus, and you see all this stuff about menstruation, and, and this, this is, you have to lean into this. It's in the Bible. We have to understand, why is God talking about this? What is it pointing to? When we look at this, we say, well, what could this possibly mean? What does all of this mean? And the, you have to ask yourself the question, what is this? And what is this? And this. All of this is unrealized potential life. Right? It's all life that at one moment there was the possibility of life and then suddenly now the potential of that life has been, has been eliminated and God starts talking about this, hey, listen, this is unclean. When this happens and there isn't life that happens and there's this whole thing that takes place, this isn't sin, this isn't, this isn't lawlessness, but this is natural, but it's also 
It's the loss of life. And so why does God say, listen, when the loss of life is happening, when there's this cycle that takes place and the potential for life hasn't been realized, the reason that God is saying, listen, I want to go through this process and I want us to understand this and and, and there's these things that you're going to do to become clean. What he's saying is, I am a God who is never associated with the loss of potential life. The reason you don't come into the temple during this period of time is because I'm never associated with a moment with anything that people would say, oh, that's a, that's a lost potential life. God is sending this message to them. Listen, and when you start looking at all of these different laws, you start realizing over and over again what God is doing is showing them that he is the God of life. I'm only around things where there's life and goodness when whole things are happening. Go to the skin. Same thing with all the stuff about the skin, all the weird things. You know, in one square centimeter of skin, you have like 70 square centimeters of, of, of blood vessels. There's, there's a, a bunch of nerves. There's all these sweat glands. There's oil glands. There's t- like 200 sensory receptors that are in one square centimeter of your skin. And unbelievably, about every 30 days or so, your skin replenishes itself. And, it's, and it, it dies and falls off. And, and it's changing. It's this living thing that's moving. And it's active. And, and it's this beautiful thing. But what does this mean? There is new life constantly being formed in your skin. Your skin is constantly regenerating. So then you go back to these verses where he's talking about all of this stuff of of scabs and boils and these different things that are happening where the skin is dying. And God says, no, no, listen, that means something of life has stopped and now it's moving towards death. And I'm never a God who's, who's about these things. God is always about life. If your skin is damaged or diseased or dying, it's not living. So you start looking at all of these things and you go, God isn't just obsessed with cleanliness. What God is obsessed with is life. And he's never associated with death. So really, when you start looking at Leviticus, this whole thing is all about life. A God who is always about life. And a people who are overcoming death. That's the whole point of this. So it really, it really ends with a question. Are we doing one of two things? Are we, are we leaning into the life that God is creating and are we respecting the life that he's creating? Do we respect the miracle that is life? Or do we disrespect the miracle that is life? Are, are, there, are there people that we have disdain for? Do we badmouth? Do we, do we demean? Do we criticize? Are there people that are so different from us that, that we assume they must be ignorant? Do we insult them? Do we judge them? Or do we respect them. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something really revolutionary that puts this whole life thing into perspective. In verse 21, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Basically, he's like, do you think murder is a big deal? God creates life, and the life he created is valuable. And the point is, in in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, would you respect life? Anyone who disrespects life, the miracle, the beauty of life, it's murder to God. Are we respecting life in others? Do we see that God is always associated with life and life-giving? 
Are we embracing the life that we have in Christ? Are we plugging into this life? Are we realizing this is the God of life and not death? Are we nurturing it? Are we watering it? Are we encouraging that life to thrive? Or are we doing things that disintegrate that life? Are we doing things that tear down that life, that, that make us darker, more wicked, or evil, or mean, or cynical people? Are we ignoring that life? Are we numbing that life? Are we selling out on that life? What are we doing to move towards that life? That's what this is about. There is a kingdom of death, and there is a kingdom of life. And God is saying, listen, I want you to be a part of this kingdom of life. When, you know, when Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven, he was speaking it to a group of people who were living in a hell that was on earth. And he said, but, but heaven can come down and meet you in this place. He was giving them a choice. He was giving them an option. You don't have to live like this. You can choose death, but you can also choose life. You can choose cursing, but you can also choose blessing. There is a God of life, and that God gives you the choice. Just like he gave Adam the choice, he gives you the choice. And what will you choose? You know, every now and then, um, somebody will say to me, how do you define success in the church? And um, I usually tell people, I say, you know, success in the church is never nickels and noses, meaning people in the seats or money in the offering plate. And our culture often says, well, that's, a, you know, a church is doing really well when there's people that are attending and there's money coming in. They say, that's a sign of success. That's not a sign of success. Because the NFL on most Sundays has more people watching and has more money than the church in America. So apparently the NFL must do the ministry of Jesus really well, or we have the wrong metric, right? So usually when people say, how do you define success in a church? I always come back to this. I always say, the number one indicator that a church is doing the ministry of Jesus is that there are stories of life change. That there are stories of people who were walking disintegrated, broken, cursed lives, and they made the turn and they saw that there was joy and there was peace and there was grace and they received that joy and that peace and that grace and then they began to move in that joy and that peace and that grace and then they began to spread that joy and that peace and that grace and they began to make a difference in other people's lives. That's when a church is alive. That's when a church is doing what Jesus has called it to do. Why? Because this is the God of life that we worship. And when we lean into the God of life, he lifts us out of death. Amen? And he gives us life. And if that's happening, then you know what? We should see it on each other's faces. And we should hear it in each other's voices. We should celebrate it when we see it. Because it is the life that God is giving us. That is what I want for you. But more than that, that is what God wants for you. God wants you to experience life and not death. Are you with me on this? Would you stand with me? Will you forgive me for bad props and illustrations? Okay, well then I'm gonna do it on Sunday. How's that? All right, all right. If Anita likes it, we're staying, so. Was, who, was it Anita that said, who said that? Someone over here. Oh, you said that, thank you. Thank you. I, I like you. You're full of life. Thank you. 
Can we just continue on tonight? Because I like this. This is great. Thank you. Well, now I'm blushing, so that's... <laughs> Let me offer the benediction tonight for you guys, if I can get there. <laughs> uh, may you grow closer to the God who is more about life than he is about cleanliness. And may your joy and your peace and your grace increase every passing day. And may they spill out from you to all those you come in contact with. In the powerful name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here tonight. And we will see you guys next Thursday. Have an amazing rest of your week. See you later. Oh, not next Thursday. That's right. We'll see you next Good Friday service and Saturday and Sunday. Thank you guys for reminding me of that. Yeah. See you later.